I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending October 1st. With the introduction of practical artificial intelligence, there was an enormous leap in the size of problems that people could tackle. Those using AI are eager to process oceans of data. Now, the demands on processors have changed, and that's why we've seen an explosion of startups that make specialized AI processors and AI accelerators. But having to handle so much data has also created new demands on memory ICs. The pattern in the semiconductor industry has generally been this. Chip companies figure out ways to improve their products, and then it's up to their customers to figure out how to take advantage of the improvements. Nowadays, chip designers can anticipate the improvements they'll be able to make in the future and communicate that to their customers, who can figure out how to take advantage of those improvements before they even have physical product in their hands. Now it all seems almost simultaneous, but it isn't. The pattern is still the pattern. It's just been accelerated and condensed. AI has actually changed the pattern. The problems that AI can address are exponentially larger, and that's putting a new and unusual stress on semiconductor companies. This week, our guest is Stephen Wu of Rambus, which specializes in memory ICs. Here's Wu talking about how AI has changed the dynamic in the market. Over the last you know, five or six years, when the market was really uh, demanding more performance and, and more companies were coming to us, you know, we really would go into customer meetings and we would generally start with, um, okay, well, so you know, why don't you tell me how much performance you need? You know, what, what's the desired performance level? And we were hearing something that was really unusual. We would often hear, you, know, you, you just can't give us what we really need. So why don't you tell us what you think you can do, and then we'll design the rest of our chip around that. And so it was, it was quite a shock. In a moment, we'll get back to the full interview with Stephen Wu of Rambus. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories you can find in EE Times this week. Tesla and some Chinese automotive manufacturers are still bullying ahead, developing autonomous driving systems for passenger vehicles despite growing safety concerns. Other companies are taking a more measured approach to autonomous driving. A startup called Plus is one of those. The company is planning on providing autonomous trucking, focusing on the middle mile segment of the trucking business, which is to say it will be largely restricting its vehicles to highways, which for many reasons are easier for autonomous systems to navigate. We've got a story on Plus and its plans. We also take another look at the ongoing fallout from the devastating solar winds hack. It turns out that the irreversible trend toward cloud computing is creating all sorts of security vulnerabilities. Read our analysis. The COVID pandemic keeps lingering, kept going in part by people who reject the idea that spreading disease is a bad thing, coupled with a lack of enough vaccines to go around the world. Technological countermeasures are certainly needed. I'd like to recommend a story by EE Times editor George Leopold called At Last, AI Joins the Fight Against COVID. About six months ago, vaccines became available. Back then, with vaccines in hand, the world seemed to assume that it would be safe to start going back to in-person events 
right about now? Well, perhaps it is, but with the Delta variation, every foray to a live conference requires a separate calculation of risk. Some of the editors of EE Times have decided to venture back on the road. One is Nitin Dahad. Nitin recently attended 5G World in London, near where he lives, and there he ran into Misha Dohler, Chair Professor of Wireless Communications at King's College London. Dohler is also associated with a program called 6G Futures, which promotes the development of 6G technology in the UK. Nitin asked Dohler about that work. So could you explain to us uh, why, why do we need 6G? Look, telecoms works on a few fundamental laws. Uh, think of them like uh, Moore's laws, right? So if you look at how data rate increases from generation to generation, something is always multiplied by uh, an order of magnitude. Now, if you start putting numbers together and you st- try to understand the data density which is being produced by these systems, you see that 5G uh, is producing something like 10 tera bits per second per square kilometer. Mm. If you do the math for 6G following these trends, you end up with 10 petabytes per second per square kilometer. So Mm. the big question arises, who's going to use that data? Who's going to absorb it? Who's going to generate that? And this is where we started looking at, you know, why do we really need it? Who's going to be there? And of course, I don't have a crystal ball, but my hunch is that machines will require quite a lot of data rate. And I think really that very discrete design of uh, services by humans for humans or by humans for machines will come to an end in 6G where machines will design services for themselves. So they will, rather than having very discrete spectrum uh, of services, we will have a continuous spectrum of very volatile services. And uh, so then you talked about uh, the self-synthesizing networks. Tell us a little bit about how that's going to be enabled in 6G. One of the big challenges we have in telecoms is that it takes us so long to get something from idea to the market, right? So research takes time, uh, you know, granted, but uh, then, you know, the prototyping, the standardization, the deployment takes between eight and 10 years. And it, 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 it seems like with every generation, it always takes the same time. A while back, I asked myself a question. What about replacing the design of the network? but with AI. So not humans doing this, but actually artificial intelligence starting to design its own network components. Now, this is very different from, uh, you know, zero-touch networks or self-organizing networking paradigms where humans design a network and then machines configure them. Uh, In this case, self-synthesizing networks are designing themselves, so they're self-evolving. My dream is really to be able to get networks deployed from research to actually use by by consumers, maybe within months, uh, possibly days, and long term, even seconds. Yeah, wow. Well, and, and I think you know that's part of the work you're doing with the uh, 6G futures. Is that right? Uh, very true. So we founded 6G futures to work on these challenging areas like self-synthesizing networks, human-centric networks, uh, Li-Fi. How to get this into the 3GPP architecture? Um, and we have uh, founded this with a few universities, with Bristol, uh, Dimitra, with Howard from Strathclyde, and many more universities are now joining as well as industry and of course we are having endorsement hopefully you know by the by government and other in, in, in international partners 
That's good. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we have written about that, so I uh, encourage our listeners to read that. But uh, now, a little bit more flippant, uh, you talked about, yeah, where is all this G going to end? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I made a prediction that uh, 5G will be our last G. Uh, why? Because I've seen we have softwareized the ecosystem, and I thought it would be straightforward then to innovate in features rather than in big blocks of whatever we do in the G generations. However, I have underestimated the amount of work it takes to actually innovate, to get you know, a research idea into something you can deploy in production so it works with, with the consumers. So that's why I came up with this idea of self-synthesizing networks. So I think it, it will probably take us set to 7G to kind of consolidate that. And therefore, I think 7G, 8G will probably be our last G, but this time for real. Misha Dalla, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. That was EE Times editor Nitin Dahad with Misha Dolar of King's College London, recorded at 5G World in London. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left and you'll see links to all the stories I mentioned a moment ago. You can also go straight to eetimes.com, where you can get all the details on all of these stories, along with all our other coverage. Artificial intelligence is not one thing. If you install an AI out there in the world, it's probably small and lonely, and it has few resources to work with, but it probably doesn't need much to figure out whether a fruit tree is or is not being preyed upon by pests, or if it would be useful for some particular traffic light to change color at any given moment. As a matter of fact, we discussed that type of situation two podcasts ago with Chris Catterton with the company MicroAI. One of the other extremes of AI is training, which typically involves bringing an AI to the point where it can look at an X-ray and issue a likely diagnosis or to determine if a particular molecule might be the basis for an effective medicine. Computing had always been about taking the data and doing something with it and then outputting the result. Now, training an AI for something as complex as the types of applications I just spoke about is about taking Amounts of data that are enormous, voluminous, vast, brobdignagian, and going over it again and again until the model produces the desired results. Those data sets have to be stored somewhere at hand, which means I see memory, and usually a lot of it. And AI applications create some unique demands for getting to it. Rambus has been developing innovative memory ICs and associated technology for years. Stephen Wu is a Rambus fellow and distinguished inventor. We recently sat down with Wu to talk about AI and memory chips. We're, we've been talking about uh, at E times about coprocessors and processors and 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 you know uh, system architectures even sometimes, but there's a profound effect that a lot of people don't realize on memory chips, and that's where Rambus comes in. I was wondering if you could tell us what it is about AI uh, and what's going on in AI and, and how it affects memory. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, at Rambus, we've been in the memory business for several decades. And, you know, what we see is that, um, you know, AI in particular is a, an important driving application now for the development of new memory technologies. It turns out that um, some of these AI engines that you see from companies like NVIDIA and others, um, they, they really require the fastest memories. And there's a few reasons for that. 
One is um, these models that are being implemented today to do things like natural language processing, image recognition, and recommendation. Um, they just require um, a, a very, very large models. And so, for one, you need just a lot of storage to support those models. The other thing is that, um, you know, AI engines, they require, you know, a lot of examples to learn from. And it turns out that these large models that are complex, they require lots and lots of training data. And so what we're seeing is that the size of these models is growing at more than 10x per year. And of course, when those models are growing at more than 10x per year, you also have a growth in the amount of training data. And so if you kind of look at that and you say, wow, you know, um, the sizes of these things are growing so fast. That's that's really faster than any other semiconductor technology trend. And so uh, the natural thing that you have to think about is where do I store all this? And it's it's really memory. And you know, in addition to the capacity, you have to really be able to push that data very quickly so that you can train things quickly and, and you can move that data quickly. So bandwidth becomes a, a really important issue as well. And then, you know, yeah, finally, the, the third part of that is really the power efficiency. So there's, you know, you don't want to spend infinite power and you have to think a lot about how to budget that power that's there. You want a lot of it to be in the, uh, in the core computational part of that engine. And you really, you know, data movement is starting to become a big limiter now in terms of performance and power efficiency. So there's a lot of challenges there on the memory side to try and to, um, uh, really meet the needs of of this greater amount of data for AI. Is it just a matter of drawing the data in, or is there like a feedback iteration? Do you like do you end up processing the data, feeding it back, drawing it back later? Does it loop? Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out in the training process, what's interesting about it is it's very iterative. So you have this training set, and what you do is you repeatedly present it to the AI engine, and it gets better and better at recognizing the things you want it to recognize. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you had a stack of flashcards and you were trying to learn a new language or something, you would just iteratively go through your stack of flashcards over and over again, and eventually you get better at, uh, at recognizing all of the words and phrases that you're trying to train yourself to understand. And really, AI works in a very similar way. Um, you know, we, we just try and repeatedly present the information. And what happens is those computations are constantly adjusting the parameters of the neural network. So it begins to home in on uh, making the correct answers across the entire training set, you know, as, as accurate as you can be. But, you know, you might imagine that process of just repeatedly going through the flashcards, you know, people want to go faster and faster, and the flashcard deck can be very, very large. And so it's really about pushing a lot of data very, very quickly through the neural network so that it can adjust and, and, and learn its task. Yeah. Now, uh, a moment ago, uh, you used a two-word phrase that was interesting, new memory. Um and that could mean two different things or several different things, perhaps. But uh, but in my mind, I was thinking uh, new versions of existing memory. So can we improve SRAM and flash and, and especially DRAM, I imagine? Um, and then there's the other thing where uh, of emerging memories, memories like uh I don't know, FRAM, MRAM, RERAM, um, different categories of, uh, or, or different uh, architectures and spins on the technology that, um, that people were anticipating might become useful. So let me ask you first about 
improving the memory we have, and then where some of these emerging memories fit in. Sure, yeah. Um, so let me address the first part first here, which is um, if you look today at some of the toughest kinds of problems that people try and do in the data center, we're talking about training large models. And it turns out that there's really three kinds of memory that people use. Um, the first is on-chip SRAM. And on-chip SRAM is really great. You know, it's um, very, very high bandwidth. You can get many tens of terabytes a second of bandwidth on a standard reticle-sized die. Um, and it's also extremely power efficient. But the, the real challenge there is that um, capacity is, can be a challenge. So uh, it turns out that on a standard reticle-sized die, you can get a few hundred megabytes of capacity. And you know, if that's good enough for your problem, then boy, you know, on-chip memory is a, a great solution for you. But what we find is that... Um, with these growth rates I mentioned, where the models are, are growing at you know more than 10x per year and the data set sizes are large as well, what we find is that more and more people are really turning to um, uh, the fastest kinds of DRAMs that are available, so HBM and GDDR. And it turns out HBM is kind of a newer type of HBM, memory. HBM, high bandwidth memory. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, it's high bandwidth memory, and it um, it's a kind of memory that involves stacking not only uh, within the DRAM component, but stacking of the components together, so the DRAMs and the processors. Um, it involves some extra components, a, a, a silicon substrate, and uh, what it does, though, is it uses a very large number of wires uh, on the order of 1,024 wires. Um, between each DRAM device and the processor that are, and they're, these wires are very finely spaced. And what you can do to get the high bandwidth there is um, you, you actually don't have to run the data rate very high when you have that many wires. And so um, what it does is it ends up being very power efficient um, and it ends up being uh, pretty area efficient as well. Just the challenge is that it's um, more difficult to design because of the stacking and it can be more expensive. Uh, and so if you can tolerate that cost and if you have the engineering skill to be able to implement the solution, it is a great choice, um, especially if you need external DRAM. The other option here is on GDDR or graphics DRAM. And this kind of memory has been around for a couple of decades. It was originally developed for the graphics market, still used very widely among the GPU manufacturers. Uh, but what it has is it has kind of the more traditional manufacturing approach where it's a packaged device that you put on a PCB and um, it, you know it, it uses kind of more traditional manufacturing technologies. So um, you know if you find that you can't quite tolerate the cost or the complexity of doing something like HBM, then GDDR is a great choice for you. So really, you know, we see a number of choices here, and really most everyone's gravitating now towards you know HBM and GDDR because they need the capacity of the external DRAM. Okay. Right. Yes, that's kind of what's going on in the DRAM world. Um, and then you asked about you know some of these other emerging memories and things. And I, I think really what's going on there is um, you know some of the emerging memories, very, very interesting technology, but it's still pretty early days for this kind of technology. Still a number of uh, challenging manufacturing and reliability issues to work through. Um, you know, it, they do have some interesting promise, but there also are some things about um, you know, about the 
the the emerging memories. Some of the the issues like um, endurance, for example, and and you know kind of high write currents and things like that, they make it a little bit harder to use widely in a lot of different kinds of systems. So I would say you know the industry is working very hard to try and address some of these things. But you know I think I think for now you know DRAM is going to remain the dominant kind of technology that we'll be seeing in a lot of these AI engines going forward. Yeah. Now, um, the the kind of story arc, as I understand it, was that um, these emerging technologies do, in fact, have some intriguing properties that might bring some benefits. Um, but they were also anticipating that that standard type uh, memories, DRAM uh, and its variants, would hit a wall someplace. And th there was that expectation at some point. And apparently, uh, uh, you know, folks have done some incredible innovation in DRAM. Is that, is that an accurate evaluation of kind of, you know, the wider trend? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, a lot of the work that's been done on some of these emerging memories, they, they do have some pretty fascinating uh, characteristics. For example, non-volatility is a really good one. And, uh, and certainly the ability to use them in, uh, as kind of an analog type of computing cell make them you know very attractive because it's extremely dense computation that's happening in parallel um, there are you know some of these some manufacturing related issues like resistance drift and uh, there's other things as well like um, you know kind of longer term reliability that um, that 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 kind of make them challenging and then in parallel you know, DRAM has been around for many decades, and the industry has a lot of embedded knowledge on how to improve uh, improve DRAM. And so, it's kind of this moving target that you're always trying to see if you can be better than. And you know, the DRAM industry continues to make good progress. And so, I, I think for now, what uh, you know, what we see is that you know, DRAM continues to make um, enough good strides forward, and it continues to have the right balance between um, the various kind of performance parameters uh, and characteristics that make it still the the right choice, especially in the data center. I mean, it's it's you know, kind of what we see is that it'll be the the dominant technology. Um, you know, for the next several years. And, and But the industry will continue to try and work on alternatives, which makes it very exciting to be part of the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of brings up an interesting side note. Um, I think we've had people on this podcast and in the pages of EE Times, and I'm sure you've talked to some folks who are, who, uh, are worried about the end of Moore's Law. Um, it's slowing, if nothing else. And yet there's every time somebody thinks that that uh, silicon is dead, they manage to eke a little more out of it. Uh, we're, I mean, literally, we're getting close to, you know, atomic level and physical limits there. Uh, how, what kind of runway do you see left with with silicon and DRAM and silicon? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, there's a lot of smart people in the world. And what they've shown repeatedly. I know. I've met almost everybody I talk to is smarter than me. So you don't, you don't need to tell me that. <laughs> I mean, I think what's fun about the industry is that um, the industry rises to the challenge. And what I would say is that over the past couple of decades, there have been, um, you know, substantial concerns about slowing of Moore's law and, and, and about the eventual end of Moore's law. And kind of the way, you know, the way we see it is, yes, it, you know, it is true that things are slowing down a bit, but we do see very compelling roadmaps on, you know, from the industry that, uh, that, you know, seem to indicate that, yeah, things will continue forward. Now, maybe it's not at the same rate as before, and maybe uh, it might be, uh, you know, challenging to, you know, on the manufacturing side to keep that expense the same. 
but there are there are paths forward and so um you know kind of what we see is that um, yeah, the, the continued ability to shrink and to get to better process geometries, it will continue, um, you know, may, but maybe slow a bit. Now, the, the other part of that uh, equation, though, is kind of something we touched on earlier, which is, you know, data movement itself is beginning to be the problem. And so some of our own analysis shows that if you have like a, an HBM, a high bandwidth memory device, uh, DRAM talking to an SOC, it turns out that the power to kind of, um, you know, read and write to that device and move data back and forth it turns out only a third of the power is really spent kind of getting the bits out of the DRAM core where the where the data is stored. It turns out about two thirds of the power is spent moving the data just between the two chips, between the uh -huh. processor and the memory. And so you can kind of see, you know, the, the, the limiter is starting to be that movement of the data. And so if you kind of, you know, if you kind of press in a little bit more to figure out why that is, what you see is that the distance that you have to move the data it's on the order of a 10 millimeters or so. And so it turns out that, you know, there's a direct correlation between that distance and the amount of power you spend. So, you know, people look at that and say, well, how do I reduce that distance? And the, the natural way to think about it is to go to stacking. So if I could put the memory, um, you know, kind of in the same stack with, uh, with the processor, what I can do is I can cut down that, you know, maybe from 10 millimeters that I'm moving the data to really just tens of microns. And so now we're talking about a pretty Pretty dramatic improvement in that distance. And we think that two thirds of the pie where you're spending all this power, we think we can cut that down by about an, an order of magnitude. So tremendous improvement in the, in the data movement power. And then you get a commensurate improvement in performance as well. Wow. Phenomenal. So, uh, so yeah, talk to me about, uh, I mean, part of it is, is the memory functionality itself, but as you said, it's the part of the bottleneck seems to be just the, the shuttling of data back and forth. And, um, uh, so, so it sounds like one of the, one of the answers is, is package, you know, innovative packaging approaches. Um, ar architecturally, are there other ways of, of addressing that issue? Of, of moving data back and forth? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it, really, what we've seen, especially in the AI space, is that uh, there have been really innovative approaches to re-architecting and, and really thinking differently about the architectures of AI engines. And so building architectures that are very specific to the computation and data movement patterns within AI. And so a lot of these um, really interesting designs you see, thing, you know, things just to name a few, like the, the Google TPU, for example, is a really good example. Or, you know, you see um, you see solutions from people like Cerebras, Graphcore. You know, they're really about um, you know trying to minimize the data movement. And when you do bring data from off chip onto your chip, you're trying to use it just as many times as possible. You want that high reuse so that you can amortize the high cost of getting the data. Um, you know, in, up through many reuses. So that's kind of that's kind of one side of it, and um, really the other part of it is um, if you think about the whole uh, AI processing pipeline, you know, there's this, uh, you know, there are things, um, you know, just to kind of feed the AI engines where you're trying to minimize data movement there, and you're trying to uh, you're, you're trying to improve the rest of that pipeline so that doesn't become the bottleneck. Okay, so I've heard tell of CXL. Explain what CXL is and 
put it in context for us. Sure. Yeah. It, it actually dovetails nicely to kind of what I just mentioned here. So, um, you know, yeah, I knew that, but I figured I'd <laughs> slob the softball. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and so what CXL is, is, um, it's a new kind of interconnect standard. It's called the compute express link. And what it does is it has multiple functions, really. Um, one thing that it allows you to do is it allows you to take processors and connect them with things like accelerators and FPGAs, where, um, it allows them to have kind of a, an ability to, to do things like share data and to be able to really use whichever engine is, uh, is most advantageous for a, during a, a particular portion of a computation. Now, where, where it gets interesting, uh, especially to Rambus, is that um, CXL also offers the ability to connect memory to a processor. So you might, you know, the traditional thing you see today on CPUs is you have these DIMM slots and you, you, you plug DIMM modules in. But what CXL will allow you to do is have another kind of interconnect where we can put memory. And what makes it particularly interesting is that um, you know, you can actually have servers, for example, that um, have not only DIMM sockets with memory in them, but these extra CXL links. And that gives you the ability to expand both your memory capacity and your memory bandwidth beyond what you can do today. And for something like AI, where uh, the processing pipeline depends on a, a lot of memory capacity, and of course, you have to push that data back and forth, so you need a lot of memory bandwidth, this is a great solution for making sure that the rest of the processing pipeline doesn't become the bottleneck. Um, further down the line, uh, the other thing that CXL will offer is the ability to um, disaggregate systems. So today, uh, the way a server is put together is there's kind of a fixed amount of resources within the box. There's some number of CPUs and some number of cores, some amount of memory, some amount of storage. But in the future, what you'll be able to do with CXL is you'll be able to take those resources and instead of having kind of fixed portions in each server, you'll be able to have pools of these resources. So you might have a box that just has CPUs. You might have a box that has just storage, a box that has just memory. And what's kind of cool about that is when a job comes in, you can then go to these pools and grab however much of each of those resources that you need for that job. And you can provision it to that job until it's done. And when that job is then finished, you can return those resources to the pools and they can then be loaned out and provisioned to a future job in whatever ratios are needed for that particular job. And so what we see here is that um, with, especially with AI, with it being so data intensive and so bandwidth hungry, the ability to tailor what you're provisioning for a particular workload um, will allow you to run an incredibly wide range of workloads, especially in a, a place like AI where we're seeing the diversity of workloads grow each year. So it's, you know, it's a really good match to a, the kind of the growing needs that we see in places like AI. Yeah. So that's... Um... Uh, perhaps I'm just not understanding this well, uh, or perhaps I'm not understanding data center um, dynamics very well. Uh, I, I, I get the disaggregation, why disaggregation within a data center is useful. This has been going on for a while. So they're able to, you know, get, get shared resources and apportion them and make sure that those resources are churning constantly instead of lying lying unused. But if you start physically moving, physically separating memory from processing, you've got that distance again. 
uh is is am i am i thinking about it wrong or is it just you know yeah i think i think yeah the way you're thinking about it is right there is an architectural tug of war between trying to figure out how to provide the maximum flexibility so that you really can have a lot of resources attack a particular problem versus managing things like the distance that goes on because that the distance um, you know requires more power and it does increase the latency and so there is you know what i'd say is there's it's really an active area of research right now and one possibility if you look at some of the newer processors um, that are coming out is you know one possibility is that you might have memory that is you know some smaller amount of memory that is attached directly to the CPUs, and you know with uh, like for example um, if you look at uh, some of the proposals like you know like that are coming from companies like Intel, um, that memory might actually be able to operate in multiple modes. It might operate more like a cache in some modes, and it might operate uh, more like memory in other modes. And so if it were to operate something like a cache, you might think about having um, a pool of, of memory that's a little bit further away, but be able to get the benefits of reuse by, by operating the local memory more like a cache. So it, it, is, a, it is a bit of an open uh, issue within the industry. But what's interesting is that there is this, um, there, there is this adaptation going on. Um, and this, you know, and so it, uh, like many of these kinds of things, um, you know, having that hardware available will allow the the user community to really explore the best ways to use it. And I'm sure there'll be more uh, more evolution to come. Uh, but the, I think the key is that um, all in all, it will allow you know greater amounts of resources to be thrown at at the largest problems that need it, and and will be able to achieve higher performance because of it. Yeah. Um, there are so many different categories of AI problem. Um, some of them, so, some AIs are like, like inference, like training for the data require these enormous data sets. Um, is there, are, are there converse concerns uh, um, implementing systems that can support um, AI processes that have very sparse data sets? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the, the thing that's really interesting about AI is, um, you know, there, be, because of, you know, kind of memory capacity limits and because of uh, concerns about how much bandwidth you really can provide, um, there are, there, there has been a lot of work over the years on things like sparse models where, you know, maybe you don't need to represent every connection or maybe I can reduce the granularity of, of some of the numbers that are used to represent the model parameters. Um, and so those kinds of things are, uh, you know, have been actively studied for quite a while. And it turns out that neural networks are pretty tolerant. You know, you, you really can reduce your precision if you need to. You can introduce sparsity. Um, and it allows you to kind of conserve the resources that are very precious to you, like the capacity and the bandwidth that you need. And so I think, you know, there is more work that's going on. It, it does get better each year. Um, and so that's also an active area of research right now about really what is the best way to train a model that ultimately you want to be sparse. You know, you might think about training it um, in its, its, its kind of uh, full mode first, and then at past a certain point, you might start to prune it and you might start to introduce sparsity and then continue training from there. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an active area of research right now, but it is something that the community um, is using really as a response to the fact that these resources are very precious. Yeah. All right. Um, anything that I haven't asked about that uh, that's pertinent here? 
I mean, I think the the key is that um, you know, like like we talked about, it, it really is data movement that we're seeing driving a lot of things. So we talked a lot about memory, but many of these concepts also apply to the the chip to chip, the processor to processor connections as well. You know, these days, people in the data center, for example, on these large neural network models, you're using multiple chips to try and train the model. And so there are these these points in the the training phase where you do have to get everybody to communicate. So, um, you know, it's, it really is many of the same kind of issues. It's about the bandwidth and the power efficiency and, and how to make those links, you know, faster and, and really better for the type of task that's going on. It's something I alluded to before, which is, um, you know, the compute part of it, um, the industry's done a great job over the last few decades to make that better. And, and really memory and interconnects are once again in the spotlight because of this large amount of growing data that we have to we have to be able to process. So for us, it's a really interesting time to be in the industry. It's a it's a, it's a great time, actually. And, and we, we have a driving set of applications led by AI that that's really helping move our industry forward. That was Stephen Wu, a fellow and distinguished inventor at Rambus. Artificial intelligence, as I mentioned earlier, is not one thing. Depending on who you talk to, whatever we have today that we're calling artificial intelligence might not even merit that description. You might want to listen to last week's podcast with Helen Toner, Director of Strategy at Georgetown University Center for Security and Emerging Technology. She and EE Times editor George Leopold talk about what safe, reliable AI should look like. And speaking of podcasts, inimitable EE Times editor Maurizio DiPaolo Emilio has published his latest Power Up podcast. Shuli Goodman, founder and executive director of LF Energy, a Linux Foundation project, is his guest. They talk about how an open-source approach to power management can be an important means of transforming the global production of energy. This is Shuli Goodman from that episode. You know, the power system that we have today is about 150 years old, and it was created out of a certain kind of mind, and it was created out of a certain kind of consciousness. When I look at what we are facing to me, we're in a, a conflict between are we going to transform our consciousness or are we going to uh, have catastrophe? And so when I think about open source, I think about open source as a paradigm. It's, it's really a legal kind of framework that enables cooperation. It's, it's, you know, it's not complex. You can find the latest Power Up podcasts on our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find the weekly briefing, the artificial intelligence podcast with Sally Ward-Foxton, the embedded podcast with Nitin Dahad, and our artful engineer videos. And that concludes this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. How's your memory? Um, okay. <laughs> is it, I, I, the reason I ask is you know, I'm one of those guys who, like, you know, I can, I can be introduced to, like, you know, three people 
and I always forget names. Oh. And, and you have that thing where you do like an they tell you to do a mnemonic, right? Like, oh, do a do a little rhyme or something or other. And I used to do that, and then I'd forget the rhyme. Oh, <laughs> and the name. So, so I mean, like you know, are you are you one of those people who like forgets his car keys all over the place? Oh yeah, there's you know, I'm I'm no different. I mean, there's definitely things I forget here and there, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's um, yeah, I tend to uh, I'll, I'll tend to forget uh, like dates sometimes and uh, and things like that. So yeah, or I'll I'll forget where I put something is another pretty classic one for me. So or like where I parked my car is a pretty common one for me, and like hmm, you know, where, where did I put that thing, right? So. The one of the great, I mean, you know, they say things like the greatest invention since sliced bread. I say the greatest invention since a little key fob that makes your car make noise. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it, I, I definitely use that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys holding my keys up high above my head in the parking lot, trying to get the maximum distance on my, uh, on the chirp. Right. So yeah, that's, that's definitely me. <laughs>